Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's pretend that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn off all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the faceless nun, part two. After Harry Price died in 1948, the Society for Psychical Research opened their own investigation into Borley Rectory. They were troubled by Price's published account of the haunting and wanted to see what the truth was. Their official findings were published in the 1956 book The Haunting of Borley Rectory, and in it, they concluded there was substantial evidence that Harry Price himself had faked many of the supernatural phenomena, but that he also did not do so alone. There were many other hands involved in the fraud, going back to nearly the very beginning of Borley Rectory's history. The Society could find no documentation to support the legend of the monk and the nun, and in fact, the first written mention of the nun's ghost comes from 1900, when Ethel Bull testified she and her sisters had seen the nun in the garden. The gruesome tale of a nun walled up alive is a major plot point in the book Montezuma's Daughter by H. Ryder Haggard, first published in 1893 and one of the Bull family's favorite novels. It is very possible that the Bull children eager to make their new home seem mysterious and exciting, may have taken this story and looked at the carving of monks on the library fireplace to imagine a haunting, and the tales grew from there. Eric and Mabel Smith, who moved into the house after Harry Bull died and first invited Harry Price to Borley Rectory in 1929, later said they both believed the dilapidated house was haunted only by rats and local superstition. Andrew Clark, in his definitive book about what really happened at the rectory, The Bones of Borley, writes, they never witnessed anything themselves except for dragging footsteps, an odd vehicle in the drive, an unexplained light in the schoolroom, keys shot from locks, and the words, Don't, Carlos, don't, whispered in a woman's voice on one occasion in the corridor. Few, if any, of these phenomena require much of an explanation, as the rectory was never locked and the churchgoers, indeed passers-by, were in the habit of wandering into the house to use the toilet. Courting couples were used to making assignations in some of the more remote rooms. More than one Borley resident has claimed to me that he was conceived at the rectory. 
The Smiths also believed that Harry Price was responsible for the sudden poltergeist activity that occurred on his first visit to Borley in 1929. Mabel Smith said, When Mr. Price arrived down to investigate, immediately we were astonished at the onset of phenomena, bangs, clattering, keys thrown, etc. We could not help being led to suppose that he himself was producing some of the effects. It is important to remember that in addition to being a paranormal investigator, Harry Price was also an accomplished magician who had many tricks and illusions up his sleeve. Andrew Clark writes, A dinner guest at the rectory sitting near Harry Price happened to remark, You know, all this could be done by a clever man. And almost immediately, she saw the water in her glass turning to ink, an old conjuring trick. She later related that she was convinced that Harry Price had done it, but kept quiet because he wasn't a man they would like to offend. Mary Pearson, the maid, told Mabel Smith she saw Price throw a coin. I think that tricks were being played all around us, commented Mrs. Smith about the visit. On one occasion, Mary Pearson, the Smith's maid, said that while Price was present, along with other guests, she went out into the garden and put her apron over her head and walked through the yard to simulate the nun. And this sighting was later written about in Price's books as an authentic visitation of the ghost. Charles Sutton was a reporter for the Daily Mail newspaper who was also present during Harry Price's first investigation of Borley in 1929. He wrote, The three of us went round the ground floor in this order, Price's secretary opening the doors, I examining each empty room carefully in the light of my hurricane lamp, and Harry Price following me turning the key in each door after me. But before he did so, there was a resounding crash in each room as if a stone had been thrown. As I had been concerned about the crashes in the rooms downstairs, as Harry Price was about to lock them, I suggested that we should reverse the order of procedure, and that Harry Price should walk in front of me and open the doors, and that his secretary should follow me and lock them. Harry Price argued against this change of order, so we proceeded as before. As we crossed the landing, there was a series of, rever of reverberating crashes. Later, I found that a half-brick had rolled down the staircase. Once more, I was aware of a swishing sound near me. My suspicions now thoroughly aroused, I dropped my hurricane lamp, seized Harry Price's coat, and said, "'Now I have got you!' I had, for when I plunged my hands into his coat pockets, they were full of stones and pebbles. I needed no further evidence that Harry Price was responsible for the ghostly noises I had heard, and I can never forgive him for ruining the atmosphere of a house which seemed to promise so much without the aid of material assistance." The Daily Mail decided not to publish Charles Sutton's account due to fear of a libel lawsuit from Harry Price. Besides, a real haunting would sell more papers. But it is telling 
that after this incident with Charles Sutton, Harry Price did not return to Borley Rectory for two full years. When Harry Price did return to Borley in 1931 at the urging of Lionel and Marianne Foister, Price himself wrote that he believed the haunting was not genuine. In the first edition of his book, Confessions of a Ghost Hunter, he wrote, We came to the conclusion that the supernormal played no part in the wonders we had witnessed. This was deleted in subsequent printed editions. Price also wrote to a friend, We were convinced that the rector's wife, a young woman of about twenty-five, was just fooling us for some reason best known to herself. Psychologically, the case is of great value. Psychically speaking, there is nothing in it. And that brings us to Marianne Foister, one of the most fascinating and complex figures in the tale of Borley Rectory. On August 13, 1931, the Foisters hosted a seance at Borley where many strange phenomena were recorded. One of the people in attendance was a family friend, Sir John Braithwaite. The day after the seance, Braithwaite spoke to Lionel Foister privately, saying he believed Marianne was responsible for the supposed haunting. Braithwaite later wrote in his diary, The big house is too much for her. Her husband is no use. Her sex life is apparently all wrong. He is so much older than she is. She is altogether overwrought and goes over easily into a state where she is unconscious and does not remember. In this state, she writes on the walls, turns herself out of bed through hysteria, mislays things, drinks her husband's tea, steals his papers, upsets his study, etc. Her motive may be, if the house is badly enough haunted, we shall get away from it. Marianne Foister had an intense dislike of Harry Price from the moment they met. She later said, When I was introduced to him in Borley Rectory, he gave me the creeps. He had pointed ears, a balding head with high forehead, and eyes that were startling. They were not polite eyes. He blew hot and blew cold and said that he did not believe in the haunting one minute and then, in the next breath, said that he did. Marianne Foister gave a very frank and explosive interview about the haunting of Borley Rectory in 1958, where she revealed many secrets. The first was that her brother Ian, who was staying at the rectory with the Foisters, was actually her son, a fact that was kept secret from her husband Lionel. But there was an even bigger secret. While she and Lionel lived at Borley, Marianne was having an affair with the lodger, Frank Peerless, and together, Marianne and Frank faked some of the paranormal events to distract her husband from what was really going on. Frank Peerless was a cockney conman who liked to be known as Francois d'Arles. He said he was a master florist, although his only real experience was selling flowers out of a wheelbarrow in front of cemeteries. As Lionel Foister's health began to worsen, he needed someone to help out around the rectory. 
Frank Peerless responded to the ad, and within weeks of arriving at the house, he and Marianne began a passionate sexual relationship. Marianne loved Lionel, but their marriage had been platonic for many years. When the interviewer asked Marianne if she'd liked Frank as soon as she met him, she replied, Not particularly, but I was kind of desperate. I think it was several weeks before we had sexual relations. Their relationship was often violent. Marianne said, After it was started, I realized I had made a mistake. We fought like cats and dogs, it's true. Even though the relationship was tempestuous, it lasted for several years. Lionel eventually found out about Marianne's affair with Frank, although we don't know exactly when. When the interviewer asked Marianne about what Lionel said to her when he discovered her infidelity, she replied, He said I was a naughty girl. It can't be an accident that Lionel Foister, in his unpublished book Fifteen Months in a Haunted House, renames Frank Peerless as Frank Lawless. However violent Frank got, Marianne felt that she could not leave him. Frank knew that Ian was really Marianne's son, and he used that information to blackmail her into staying in the relationship. Marianne said, Frank was always threatening to tell Lionel if I didn't have sexual relations with him. Frank was only useful to me in bed. Lionel Foister was apparently involved in some of the fraud as well. Authors Iris Owen and Pauline Mitchell wrote in their book, The Most Haunted Woman in England. Marianne says that Lionel threw objects many times, especially when the group of spiritualists from Mark's Tay were present. He threw things in order to observe their reactions and to note what they would say. She says the minute these people left the house, all such throwing of objects stopped. The phenomena ceased completely when Lionel became confined to a wheelchair. Marianne Foister also recalled in her autobiography, Lionel was suffering from a form of heart trouble. He was very, very forgetful all his life, but more so towards the later years of his life. He would place things down and wouldn't be able to find them, but when he found them again, he would say the things had carried it around. The ghostly bell ringing at Borley Rectory was also easily faked. One night, Marianne's son Ian, who everyone thought was her brother, discovered how this was done. Ian said, Marianne had sent me into the courtyard to fetch coal and to pump water. It was raining and windy, and I was wearing an old raincoat without buttons, which I could not keep closed in the wind. I saw a piece of string half hidden in the ivy, and thought this would be useful to tie my raincoat around me. I gave the string a sharp tug to pull it from the nail on which I thought it was hung. To my astonishment, the bells inside the house began to ring. Marianne came out of the house and told me to keep quiet about it. The string was attached to a group of exposed bell wires in the house. Ian also discovered how easy it was for rats to cause the bells to ring as well. Marianne said, Because the bell wires were laid in the attic on the floor, when Ian was there, we went up to the attic and tested this. 
we found out that the bells could be made to ring by tampering with them. Mabel Smith, who lived at Borley before the Foisters, also said, I state emphatically that I saw enormous rats in the place, and am sure these were responsible for the bell ringing and many noises attributed to the supernatural. Even with all she admitted to, Marianne Foister denied being responsible for the writing on the walls, even though it closely resembles her own handwriting. She said, I had nothing to do with it. I saw them, I surely did, but I had nothing to do with them. There were a lot of people around. It's also worth remembering that Marianne and Lionel's adopted daughter Adelaide was also living in the house and was known to scribble on the walls. Marianne's lover, Frank Peerless, may also have been part of this aspect of the haunting as well. Marianne herself suspected that Edwin Whitehouse, a family friend, was the culprit since the writing stopped soon after he was no longer welcome in the house. We'll never know for sure. One unusual detail is that Lionel Foister did not recognize the writing on the walls as being his wife's, and Marianne's son Ian also denied it was hers. Nevertheless, the similarities between the wall writing and Marianne Foister's handwriting are very, very striking. By 1932, things at Borley Rectory were spinning out of control, and when the Marx Tay spiritualist group offered to come and perform an exorcism of the house, all the hoaxers probably breathed a sigh of relief at the opportunity to end the charade. But they went out with a bang. On the night of the exorcism, January 23, 1932, all hell broke loose. Guy Lestrange, the psychic medium present on that night, later wrote, Bottles materialized and smashed by themselves. China transported itself from the floor below and smashed itself to pieces. Bells rang without any wires to pull them. There were inexplicable sounds, footsteps, and breathing, apparitional forms, one luminous and one dark, and distinct changes in temperature. I thought Marianne was very highly strung. I was alone with her for some time, and she opened her heart to me and told me things I would never repeat to anyone. Once. Marianne seemed to have a fit of hysterics, laughing and crying together. She recovered after a while. Her husband took no notice. Then Marianne went up to bed. I was making notes of the evening events when I heard cautious but distinct footsteps enter the room. I felt a chill run down my spine, but I did not turn round. I heard the footsteps approach me and then pause. I turned quickly, but there was nobody there. Later, soon after one o'clock in the morning, I saw Marianne Foister pass the open door. She seemed to glide rather than walk, 
and she wore a diaphanous nightdress which reached to the ground. When I asked her where she was going, she replied, To make some tea. Very slowly, almost trance-like. And when I asked her whether she was all right, she replied again, To make some and she went on her way. Andrew Clark, in his book The Bones of Borley, writes of Marianne Foister in this moment, What a star she was. At this point, Lionel Foister came out of his room and was extremely angry to find Marianne wandering around the house wearing a see-through nightgown with nothing on underneath. Guy Lestrange continues his narrative. The occupants of the house showed signs of nervous tension throughout the night, especially the lady, who went downstairs at about 3 a.m. and closed doors, etc. Several bolts and locks were heard to be operated during the visit. At that point, Marianne ordered the spiritualists out of the house immediately, saying that Lionel had a sermon to write. In his book, The Bones of Borley, Andrew Clark writes, Were I to write a novel based on the Borley Rectory affair, I would choose this night for Lionel to finally understand that Frank and Marianne were, after all, responsible for the haunting and that they were indeed having an affair. He would, perhaps, spot how easy it would be for Frank to heave the bottles up the stairwell from the cellars, one in each arm, so that they smashed together in midair. He could even have discovered the device that had been installed to ring the bells from outside the house. If there had been a confrontation, it would explain the electric atmosphere in the house that night, including Lionel's uncharacteristic bad temper. In her autobiography, Marian Foister wrote, In the night, it began to rain, torrents of it. When we got up in the morning, it was like a new world, all washed clean. The mediums told us that we would not to be really bothered again. We might have little happenings, but that there would never in our time be much trouble. After that night, the haunting of Borley Rectory virtually ceased. Marianne and Frank moved out of the house and lived as husband and wife in London, but Marianne faithfully spent the weekends back at the rectory with Lionel. Finally, in 1934, Marianne ended her relationship with Frank Peerless and came back to live with Lionel full-time until they left the house for good in 1935. In 1937, Harry Price and his team of paranormal investigators, who were all amateur, remember, moved in. Major Henry Douglas Home visited Borley in the summer of 1937 with Harry Price, and he reported, After dark, we toured each room every hour, my friend leading, myself, and Price bringing up the rear. The first few hours we found a number of extraordinary squiggles on walls which we all swore had been unmarked on our previous hour's visit. 
We each carried a torch, and I was so intent on examining each new mark that I failed, at first, to realize how they were being made. The last man had a pencil up his sleeve, and as he swept his torch over the wall ahead, he made new squiggles in the darkness which would be found on the next inspection. I suggested that in future I would bring up the rear, as I was having all the excitement of finding new marks. I thus kept Harry Price in view. No other poltergeist scribbles appeared that night. Another of Price's investigators, Gordon Glover, wrote about his own visit in February 1938. There were bumps, and there were thumps, and a shuffle and a crack. My wife, in delight, fancied that she heard a door quietly close downstairs. The wife of my friend, an intense and highly strung girl, said that she heard light footsteps, which were inaudible to the rest of us at the same time and place. This same young woman, while we were peering through the February twilight at the famous Nun's Walk, claimed suddenly, in a tense whisper, to have seen a humped shadow move between two fir trees. These events, together with our observations of rat and mouse droppings, I reported at length to Mr. Price, adding observations of my own to the effect that we could not be convinced of any paranormal happenings. Particularly, I doubted the appearance of the nun. In the half-light, nothing is easier, if the witness is so disposed, than to join together two solid objects, trees, by a third moving object, shadow or nun, in the last faint light before darkness. Mr. Price, in his book, The Most Haunted House in England, quoted verbatim and truthfully sections of my report. Other comments, in particular reference to rats and mice, he omitted. The humped shadow seen by my impressionable companion was hailed by Mr. Price as the nun indeed, who, he wrote, put in one of her rare appearances in February 1938. She may have done, but I doubt it. Major Douglas Holm puts it very bluntly. As happened in my case, any critical or suspicious observer incurred Price's extreme displeasure, for he could not afford to have the whole edifice of mystery which he had created destroyed by exposure. From his mass of untrained observers who reported everything from a dog barking to a cloud of gnats, he got exactly what he wanted. All he had to do was write it up, and carefully, very carefully, edit these stories for publication and financial gain. Despite all this, most of Harry Price's amateur paranormal researchers believed in him and came to his defense. One of them, Ellie Howe, said, Suppose for a moment that Price was quite aware that he was setting the stage for a colossal hoax. If he had that sort of thing in mind, he never gave the game away, or at least not to me. His acting must have been consummate, but I don't think he was acting. Why, if the Borley haunt was phony, did he take the trouble to spend a tedious hour before dawn standing with me in the, in the notorious blue room? Was it just to impress me? I don't think so. Neighbors also maintained that the haunting was indeed real, even if there were some people who had faked certain events. One, 
Mrs. Hanning, gave an interview to the BBC in 1956, where she said, I lived at Borley near the rectory and the church from March to December 1936 and in the adjacent village for 19 years. I maintain there is a great deal of evidence that the rectory was haunted before Mr. Price ever visited it and certainly after Mrs. Foister had left. The authors of the recent report suggest that Harry Price was misleading the reader by suppressing information, but they do the same thing. No mention is made of Mr. Edward Cooper and his wife, who as tenants of the cottage in 1916, had experiences of poltergeist activity, saw the nun, and Mr. Cooper saw the coach. They also ruthlessly set aside Mr. Shaw Jeffrey's evidence about such things in 1885 and 1886. Even back during Queen Victoria's reign, the ghost of the nun was talked about in the village. As to my own experiences, in the summer of 1937, when Mr. Mark Carr Pierce, an excellent investigator, was in the house with my husband and myself, the outer doors were locked and the windows sealed. We heard footsteps approaching along the passage from the kitchen and the swish of garments. When we could no longer restrain ourselves, we rose to edge our way to the open door of the room in which we were, but nothing was to be seen or heard. This sound was not of people walking in the courtyard, nor of rats, nor could it have been a practical joker entering by the cellars, for he could not have got away in time without our seeing or hearing him. In the cottage, after the rectory was burnt, there was the sound of footsteps, of crockery being smashed, the scent of violets which lasted for nearly a minute at a time when there was no lady in the house. The church warden was typing the manuscript of my husband's book, which was later privately published as Haunted Borley. My husband had written, I myself place no reliance on seances. As this was being typed, the small hand lamp near the typist that had stood there night by night as he was typing his own poems and novels was suddenly swept from the table. It is also a matter of record that the strange fire that was set in 1939 that burned the rectory to the ground where Captain W.T. Gregson said an oil lamp mysteriously went over by itself, that fire was ruled by the insurance companies to be deliberately set. It was arson. A famous photograph that was taken of the ruins of Borley before it was demolished showing a levitating brick was promoted by Harry Price as evidence of the haunting and has appeared in numerous books about Borley Rectory. The photographer later admitted that Harry Price himself had asked him to throw the brick and take a photograph. Dr. Eric Dingwall one of the authors of the Society for Psychical Research report on Borley Rectory summed up their findings this way. It must always be borne in mind that Price was a first-rate journalist and not a scientist trying patiently to ascertain what the facts were and how best to interpret them. He was content to tell the tale in the most interesting and convincing way he could and leave others to pick holes in it if they felt so inclined. In essence, Price wanted quick and sensational results which he could easily publicize and so earn fame and an enviable notoriety. 
It always astonished me that anyone really took him seriously. Yet there were many who believed in him and his work. The Borley story was merely another of Price's sensational cases, and it was certainly the most successful and attracted more attention than any of the others. I think that it deserved it. It is one of the best of all ghost stories, and few people could have told it more convincingly than Harry Price. The story of the haunting of Borley Rectory, which may have begun in the humble imaginations of the children who grew up there in the 19th century, also sparked the imagination of a brilliant writer in the 20th century. Shirley Jackson, perhaps best known for her short story The Lottery, read about the Borley case in the 1950s. Jackson was especially fascinated by the reports of Harry Price's amateur paranormal investigators and said that, In their dry reports was not the story of a haunted house. It was the story of several earnest, I believe misguided, certainly determined people with their differing motivations and backgrounds. And with that idea as a basis, Shirley Jackson wrote The Haunting of Hill House in 1959. The Haunting of Hill House is regarded as the definitive haunted house novel, and its tale of a house with a sinister history investigated by people who may or may not be experiencing a malevolent haunting continues to influence horror movies and television shows to this day. Jackson even includes the spectral writing on the walls featured at Borley. In Hill House, blood-red letters appear in the middle of the night on the wall saying, Help, Eleanor, come home. Footsteps and loud banging sounds echo outside bedroom doors. There is even suspicion that the main character could be causing the supernatural events to happen, just like Marianne Foister and others did in reality and like Shirley Jackson's Hill House. The truth about whether or not Borley Rectory was ever truly haunted can never be known. The tale is tangled by the many voices that have told it over the years, each with their own private reasons, beliefs, and fears. In his book, The Bones of Borley, Andrew Clark writes, what makes the Borley Rectory affair unusual is the way that the characters leap out of the books as if larger than life. Marianne Foister, an extraordinarily modern woman, sensual, intelligent, and feisty. Harry Price, with his mesmeric manner and his compelling journalistic style. Lionel Foister, the lovable, dignified, but ineffectual English gent. Harry Bull, the engaging but eccentric parson. Frank Peerless, the sinister sexual predator. Ethel Bull, weaving a fantastic web of fable around the rectory and its incumbents. The further one explores, the more figures burst out of the pages, so real that one can imagine being amongst them. Perhaps these are the real ghosts of Borley. Borley Rectory is no more but its legend still lives on. Up to the present day, villagers report that the Borley Church has also become haunted. 
Phantom organ music has been heard echoing in the sanctuary, as well as, as, well as the sound of spectral, monk-like chanting. Tourists from all over the world come to see the site where the most haunted house in England once stood, and they take photographs that show spectral orbs and strange, unearthly lights. And in the overgrown graveyard that separates the church from the field where Borley Rectory once stood, people still see the ghost of a lonely, faceless nun slowly walking among the old gravestones at twilight. A good story never dies. My friends, the next time we meet, we will travel back across the Atlantic Ocean to the small town of Adams, Tennessee, where there is a tale of a witch, the only incident in recorded history where a spirit caused the death of another human being. If you enjoy this podcast, I encourage you to like Going Dark Theater on Facebook, and if the spirit should move you, give us a rating and a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens, where you'll get access to every episode and its transcript, as well as other spooky writing projects that I'm working on. My name is Josh Hitchens, and this is Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, Going Dark.